0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Pin Down. I'm your host, Alex, with your other host, Tyler, from Hoop Venue. And we got a lot to talk about today, but I think the biggest conversation around the league uh, after All-Star Weekend has been what's going on with Zion Williamson. Uh, It was reported that Zion Williamson did not reach out to C.J. McCollum uh, after C.J. McCollum was traded to the Pelicans, Uh, prior to the trade deadline, which is kind of surprising when you consider the fact that C.J. McCollum is the president of the NBA Players Association. Uh, It's one thing if some random player gets traded to your team uh, and you're away from them because you're rehabbing an injury. It's another thing when the president of the Players Association gets traded to your team And you don't bother to reach out, especially a player as seemingly highly regarded as CJ McCollum is. So uh, what do you think of what's going on with the whole Zion Williamson situation so far?
1: Yeah, I I don't really know. Uh, Obviously, we don't really know the specifics, just what's actually been released to the media. Mm -hmm. But um, for me, even if you are recovering from an injury or if you're not really with the team at all, it's still kind of your duty as the best player, as the star, as almost like a, an on-court leader to reach out, right? Especially when it's assumed that they brought in CJ McCollum specifically to pair with Zion. Right. So for me, Zion not reaching out is kind of a red flag. And even more of a red flag was when JJ Reddick came out and said he actually played with him and described him as a detached teammate. Right. Which is... um. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, like I said, we don't really know all the specifics, so I'm not going to judge Zion's character or anything. But um, there are some red flags floating in the air right now about whether he's really committed to this team. Um, and who knows what'll what will happen. Because this has a lot of uh, implications on like the league itself, like with rookies and, and the draft and getting traded and things like that. Um, young stars being able to force their, themselves into better situations with no problem. I mean, I get it. It's a players' league. You want some sort of control, but like at a certain point, um, this is just gonna kill small market teams. Like, cause they they can't get those stars to come there and bring in winning situations. They have to build it. They have to build it and right uh, from the draft. And New Orleans has been doing that. And for me, Zion. If this is true, if Zion is really that detached. Um, that's a problem because he's not even giving it a real chance.
0: Yeah. And the thing that I don't think a lot of people are kind of fully wrapping their heads around. I hear a lot of people talking about how um, this is just another reason why the draft should be abolished because, you know, Zion didn't want to go there in the first place. He was forced to move there because he simply got drafted there. Um, you should be able to choose where you're working. Uh, And it's all part of this kind of player empowerment movement, which, you know, for the most part, um, I'd say I'm very, very pro player empowerment. Um, There are very few scenarios where I'm ever going to side with ownership. Uh, But from more of a league-wide perspective, um, when people talk about the Zion situation and they're saying that it's another testament to why the draft should be abolished, um, I think that's a very myopic view of the situation i think it's very uh, it's very unnuanced way to look at the situation because saying abolish the draft you know that's one thing uh in practice the consequences of doing that are much more widespread and far reaching than i think people fully get because yeah. if you abolish the draft which primarily is the only way that a small market is going to be able to acquire top end talent unless it's through trades but even with trades, uh, typically you're on borrowed time if you're trading for a superstar as a small market because more often than not, they plan on leaving when their contract is up. or you know, at the during the off season after you've had them for a year, they want out because you're a small market. they don't want to live there. And when the draft is the only way, for a small market to be able to land this top-end talent and keep them for a a significant amount of time uh, getting rid of the draft or restructuring the draft in a way that players can essentially choose where they want to start their careers. Um, I just think there's a lot more logistical stuff that needs to be considered when you say something like abolish the draft, because it's not as simple as oh, players can just choose where they want to go if they enter, you know, they choose to enter the league after college or after high school or whatever the case may be, because it's not that simple. Otherwise, all the top talent is gonna is gonna conglomerate in you know Florida. It's gonna it's gonna all go to New York. It's all gonna go to Texas. It's all gonna go to California. Um, right. All these favorable climates uh favorable tax states um you know stuff like that and basically you end up with a league that is a bunch of big market teams and a bunch of small markets just picking up the scraps and i don't think Mm -hmm. i think abolishing you know quote unquote abolish the draft isn't the right uh I guess messaging for this whole thing. I don't think it should be abolish the draft. I think a restructuring of how it's done maybe could work out for everybody, but you know, maybe a restructuring of how rookie scale contracts work, maybe a restructuring of how um rookie contract extensions are handled, stuff like that. Um but the reality of it is, and I'm sorry, I know I've talked for a long time about this but (laughs) uh, the reality of it is if you get rid of the draft that's going to hurt players more in the long run because it doesn't It's not going to affect your top end talent. The top end talent is going to get what they want. They're going to get what they want with or without the draft, as we're seeing with Zion Williamson. He's going to be able to force his way wherever he wants because he is a top end talent. He's a generational talent from what we've seen last year. So he's going to be able to do whatever he wants. The people in the league that it's going to hurt is your role players, your eighth, ninth, 10th guys in the rotation, the guys who maybe don't have the biggest name agents, the guys who, you know, aren't able to force the the front office's hand to be able to go where they want to. That's the people that it's going to hurt. So when people say abolish the draft, the only people you're helping is the top 10% of the league. The other 90% of the league, the ones without the big name agents, the ones without the big contracts, the ones without leverage in the front office, those guys are getting screwed. So I think people need to take a way more nuanced view at this situation and stop throwing out, you know, quick little one liners, hashtag abolish the draft, because it's not as simple as that. And the lockout that we're going to see at the next collecting, collect at the next collective bargaining agreement negotiations, which uh, is up for a mutual opt-out in December, 2022, and then is set for full renegotiations between 2023 and 2024. The lockout that we're going to see during the next round of CBA negotiations, I am predicting that it's going to be the biggest lockout in sports history because there is way too much. I I have read the collective bargaining agreement, Uh, I I mean, I've read 90% of it. There's so much stuff in there. I've read the majority, the vast majority of the collective bargaining agreement. And there is so much stuff in there that owners are going to use as points of contention to try and bargain for a higher share of basketball related income. So, you know, we can keep trying to push this league further towards player empowerment, which I ultimately think is a good thing, but that's not going to come without consequences. And I don't think people understand that.
1: Yeah. I agree with literally everything you said. It's just like uh, people are quick to jump on one side and just uh, essentially die on the Hill. Like, Oh, we want player empowerment, abolish the draft, Uh, all these things. And, without really looking into the specifics of how this would change the landscape of the league and organizations all around the league. And I agree small markets and role players would both just be completely screwed. It would almost turn into like um, somewhat of a version of uh, the nineties when they were adding expansion teams and mm-hmm. the top end teams were just dominating the league every year. And it's just like, there's so much parody in the league right now. I genuinely love it. Yeah. And, while I while I do agree, play but more player empowerment, more player empowerment is better because uh, individuals have choices and they should be able to exercise those choices. But um, I don't think it should be to the scale to where we're just essentially screwing some players and benefiting others. That doesn't seem like a fair bargain at all to me. And uh, yeah, the Zion situation just kind of magnifies this to a whole nother level. Cause we saw it with Ben Simmons, James Harden, uh, guys like that, where the player empowerment thing really kind of like changed the landscape.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, but imagine if a guy like CJ McCollum wanted to force his, his organization's hand, he wouldn't have been able to, he wouldn't have been able to just essentially sit out and his organization would be content with it. It's just not something that would happen. And I feel like that's just uh, a sign that it could be heading in the wrong direction, potentially in the near future.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned parody and I want to point this out because in my opinion, this is one of the most parody heavy seasons I've seen in recent history. So let's start with the Eastern conference, which to be fair in in regards to small markets, isn't as um, heavy as Western conference, but anyways, uh, This is the top 10 in the Eastern Conference fighting for a playoff spot right now. Miami, not necessarily a small market. Chicago, not a small market. Philly, not a small market. Cleveland, Milwaukee, Boston, not a small market. Toronto, not technically a small market, but in terms of NBA, it's not a free agency destination. They've largely had to build through the draft and through development in the G League. Brooklyn, technically not a small market. Charlotte, small market. Atlanta, small market. Now, let's look at the Western Conference, which is much more heavy on the parity in terms of how many small market teams are are legitimate contenders. Phoenix, small market. Golden State, not a small market. Memphis, small market. Utah, very small market. Dallas, I think that's kind of up for debate. Denver, small market. Minnesota, Population-wise and television-wise, not technically a small market, but in NBA terms, it's a small market. Clippers, relative to the Lakers, small market. Lakers, not a small market. And Portland, small market. So we are in a league right now that has such good parity, and I think that's ultimately good for the league. The difficult thing is finding a balance between player empowerment And health of the league because I think finding that balance is the tricky part I think sometimes we swing too far in the direction of hey we gotta make sure that the league is thriving the best it can I think that's one of the criticisms of David Stern uh rest in peace and argue I think in my opinion the greatest commissioner in NBA history and arguably one of the greatest commissioners in all of sports ever uh One of the criticisms of him is he was sometimes focused too much on the health of the league. And I think that's fair, as opposed to focusing on empowering the players. And I think we're in a bit of a situation where we are so focused on empowering the players that it could eventually start to hurt the health of the league. And while I am very pro-player empowerment, and I don't want anyone twisting my words and saying that I'm not... I do think that there is a good balance because ultimately the health of the league leads to player empowerment because the healthier the league is, the more money the players are making. And I think people kind of forget about that part.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, even just look at like the contract situation uh, just over 20 years ago, Michael Jordan was getting paid more than entire teams at mm-hmm. like $27 million a year. Right. Now, um, that's like not even a max. <laughs> or, right. I, I don't know what the max is. Um, I know it's definitely not a super max. But um, no. yeah, now we have Steph Curry who's gonna make like fifty million a year on his contract, which is just, I mean, that's
0: unreal. Yeah, it's
1: crazy, cause cause when the league is is just getting stronger and stronger, uh, it's bringing in more people, bringing in more fans, and uh, when the league is thriving, so are the player contracts. So. It's kind of like, like you said, it's almost like a a mutual benefit at a certain point. You just have to find out where that point is.
0: Right. Yeah, people, I mean, the ultimate way to empower the players is give them more money. I mean, I understand. I understand, like, everyone should be allowed to choose where they want to work. But at the same time, you know, money at a certain point has to cancel that out. You know, like, man, I'll... I'll live in, I'll live in, I mean, I'm an OKC fan, so I'm allowed to say this. I'll live in Oklahoma City for $15 million, even though I'm like an eighth or ninth man in the rotation. Yeah, why not? You know, I'm, you know, say I'm Chandler
1: Parsons on the Grizzlies. Right. got paid like 30 mil.
0: (laughs) And if I'm like, like Paul George, Paul George is a great example because that whole thing happened during a time where the league was thriving. The league was making a crap ton of money. Uh, The salary cap was at an all time high. You know, the league was just rolling in cash and Oklahoma city was able to give him a ridiculous contract extension. And Paul George was like, man, I mean, I'll live in Oklahoma city for this much money. Are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, at a certain point, money's going to cancel out any desire to live in LA or, you know, New York or Miami. Miami, And I don't know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's such a, it's such a tricky balance. And I think some people really, really want to like, I don't know, man, let's, let's move on. This conversation is, (laughs) this conversation is so nuanced and for people smarter than us. So it is what it (laughs) is. Um, moving on, uh, we were talking a little bit this past week on Twitter uh, about the top playmakers in the NBA right now. Um, There seems to be the same four guys that always get brought up in the conversation. So I was curious, uh, and this is going to lead into another discussion more about our picks uh, about midway through the season while we're over midway, about three quarters of the way through the season about who our award choices are 75% through the season. But who do you think is the best playmaker in the NBA right now?
1: Um well, I want to give a quick shout out to some guys that I think uh could be like vaulted up into that tier and I wouldn't say are the best, but like I could see why people say they are. And mm-hmm. that's um LeBron James. Yeah. Right. And Chris Paul. Yeah. I think LeBron James uh because of the role he's played this year more as like an off-ball scorer trying to scale to Russell Westbrook he hasn't been given the same opportunities to control the entire game like we've seen him for so long. Mm. And in my opinion, when he's able to control the game like that, he's like a top three or four playmaker in NBA history. So I do think LeBron still has the capability. I guess I'll say the talent. Because when evaluating a thing like scoring or playmaking, like a specific aspect, you have to specify whether you're talking about the talent or the value of it. Mm -hmm. And when just speaking in terms of value, I wouldn't say LeBron has been like, arguably the most valuable playmaker in the NBA this season. I would say that's probably Luka Doncic. Um, his on-ball creation is reaching levels that we've only seen touched by a few people like ever. And just, just he has the entire package. He can get to the rim whenever he wants. He can see the entire floor because of his height. He's like six, seven or six, eight. Mm-hmm. He's got the passing velocity and range to get it wherever he wants. Um, he's got all of the manipulation tools and the only thing he really doesn't have is like an elite role man or play finisher like we see with like Trey Young um who I would say is probably second or third mm-hmm. but um i think there can be a very good argument for any of Luka Doncic, Trey Young, Nikola Jokic or Steph Curry and <clears throat> it becomes interesting when you really talk about like uh what actually goes into playmaking right because mm-hmm. In theory, it should be anything that that contributes to the making of a play. That's kind of what the word is, right? Right. Making a play. Contributing to making a play. So, like, when Steph Curry just stands on the three-point line, he's contributing to making a play because they will not help off of him. But, like, is that really playmaking or is that just, like, an entirely different thing? That's where it becomes really difficult to really gauge. Um, And that's why I think it it becomes really messy when trying to compare Steph as a playmaker to Luka or Trae Young or Jokic. Um, But that's by the definition of contributing to the making of a play. Steph Curry might be number one because he contributes to more plays than anyone in the league.
0: Yeah, Um, because, I mean, you have off-ball and on-ball playmaking. And Steph is, I mean, in terms of off-ball playmaking, you know, he's pretty much the best at it
1: there's just it's just like him being on the floor is a constant advantage for your offense because even if he's not creating a four on three which he does a boatload of regardless Mm -hmm. he's still gonna like a four on four is an advantage for the offense i'm not sure people really grasp that concept yet if you ever play a 1v1 or a 2v2 or a 3v3 in pickup it's much easier to score than when you play a 5v5 oh yeah the lower the numbers are the more advantage there is for offense because there's less help on the defensive side right so When you have a guy like Steph Curry who essentially turns the game into a four-on-four by just standing 30 feet out, there's so much value in that. And that's without accounting for the fact that he's going to move constantly to to create a four-on-three, to create these wide-open downhill cuts. And almost every single time he creates a shot, it's going to end up at the rim, which is like the highest value of creation you can possibly have. Right. so like in terms, like I said, it gets really messy when you talk about playmaking talent because Steph Curry as a talent is not even anywhere near the top four as a playmaker. Right. Chris Paul, LeBron James are more talented playmakers. Darius Garland's a more talented playmaker. James Harden. But when you talk about the value of their playmaking, I think you can make a very strong argument that Steph is number one. I would personally go with Luka Doncic, but I can see why a lot of people would pick Steph as one of the five, six best playmakers in NBA history.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I I am really stuck on this question between Luka Doncic and Trey Young because there are so many different things that you can look up, look up, or look at, and they favor Luka, and there are so many other things that you can look at and they favor Trey. And so while I'm not gonna necessarily pick between the two right now because I think both of them are incredible playmakers. I do want to gush about Trey Young a little bit because I'm I did some research yesterday for a video that I'm working on and some of the stuff I found is absolutely ridiculous. So, Trey Young right now has the furthest average made three-point shot distance in the NBA at 27.3 feet, wow. which is nuts. For some context, uh, Damian Lillard, LaMelo Ball, Steph Curry are all tied for second at 26.8 feet. And then, I mean, it's just Trey Young in a league of his own from there. Everyone else doesn't even come close. That's just, that number blew my mind. Just in turn, like we talk about, you know, being able to manipulate the defense. I was watching film film of, of Trey Young's three-pointers yesterday, and I was like, this dude isn't even he's not even close to the line when he's taking these threes. He's, you know, yeah. he's like two, three steps back from from the line. And like the 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 defense, they don't just have to come up to the three-point line to guard him. They have to come out past the three-point line to guard him. And that creates so many issues. I was watching there was this one play in particular where, uh, he was bringing the ball up the floor, being guarded by Donovan Mitchell, and Clint Capella comes up and sets, uh, sets a screen on Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell does the right thing and switches on to Capella, and Royce O'Neal comes up and switches on to Trey. But the problem was Royce O'Neal only came up to just at the three-point line, and Trey was still two or three steps back. And I don't know if defenders are starting to realize this, I don't know if they still don't realize this, but if you give him that much space, he's going to take it and he's going to make it because he's shooting 38% from three this year, which is ridiculous. He's one of only seven players in the entire NBA right now, knocking down 38% of their three-pointers with at least seven and a half attempts per game. And we talk about scoring gravity. He's also one of the best mid-range shooters in the league right now. And,
1: and to add to that, not only is the mid-range pull-up like, and step-back game a huge part of his in-between game, he also has one of the strongest floaters I've ever seen. Oh my gosh, And yeah. And he can mask that floater into a lob so perfectly that the center just looks like they have no, no clue what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's like his, his level of manipulation is ridiculous when he gets going downhill towards the rim. And because his of his pull-up threat, when he, he's able to come off screens and get in between so easily, like he, he mm-hmm. usually you'll see him get, get to the point where his defender is behind him, his man. And he's pro- kind of playing like level to the screener while they're running downhill together, like le- left and right to each other. And he'll like slow down, do some hesitations to let the roll man go, go all the way to the rim. Right. And then he'll do like a pull up jumper. He'll step back for a three. He'll, he'll go for a floater or if the rim protector comes out, he'll float it right to the lob. It's like, he just has so many different counters. And I remember before last playoffs, I predicted predicted him to be a playoff dropper because I was looking at some of like the signs of like resilient scoring. Mm -hmm. And I was like, he's not a good finisher at the rim. Uh, His three point percentage is very, very streaky where it's like, yeah, he'll shoot them a lot, but will he make them Mm -hmm. And all of these different Mm -hmm. things? I was like, I don't know if he'll be a good playoff player. Right. And, just like three games and I was like, this dude has so many damn playmaking counters that it's like, there's no way he just can't exert extreme offensive value in any playoff setting. Like they faced the Knicks and then the 76ers two ridiculously good defenses. And this guy was putting up 29 and 10 a game. Mm. Even the box, they were, they were like a top whatever playoff defense ever last year. Trey young still did his thing. Right. So it's like, for me, he just has so many damn counters and it's like, just both as a playmaker and a scorer, to where it's like you wanna ice him, he'll he he'll, he'll probe with his dribble and find make the best read. Mm-hmm. You wanna you wanna hedge, um, he'll he's fine with pulling out for a mid range once you go back on the recovery. You wanna play drop, good luck.
0: Oh my you wanna playing playing play play drop coverage on, on Trey Young <laughs> is like the stupidest thing you can do. Any coach right, but any what? coach that plays drop coverage on Trey Young knows exactly what's gonna happen and they're prepared for it.
1: But you also can't blitz because he's going right, to make the exactly. best read every time. Exactly. So it's like, what do you do? You got to just, I mean, you got to mix it up. And uh, that's what we're seeing a lot, Where, where especially with Luka too. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't send the same pick and roll coverage every time. You have to mix it up. You have to have some kind of like uh, change or they become comfortable. You cannot let a playmaker of that caliber get comfortable. Uh, you, you see it with Chris Paul. When he gets comfortable in like a playoff game, he's going to go to the same exact like two spots every single possession. Sorry, I, like, lost my <laughs> voice there. I'm getting into it. Yeah. Every single possession, he will go to the same two, three spots and shoot, like, a 60% mid-range pull-up. So, it's right. like, you, when you let these playmakers and decision-makers get so comfortable, it's almost impossible to guard them. And going back just a bit to the Luka Doncic versus Trey Young thing, you said he didn't want to pick in between them. I do want to raise one point. I just want to put this image in your head. Could you imagine if Luka Doncic had John Collins and Clint Capella to run the pick and roll with. I want, I want to really, like, oh, like yeah. like uh, I don't want to, like, sway your opinion or anything, but really think about that, because Luka Doncic in these pick and rolls is most commonly, like, his best lob there is Dwight Powell. Yeah. Could you imagine the type of reads he'd be able to make with, with Clint Capella or John Collins and, like, John Collins and, like, the pick and pop specifically? I remember that one play where Luka drove at the big – then did a uh, Rondo oh, yeah. fake behind the back, then threw it backwards over his head. Like, oh my gosh. I, I just want to – I need Luka Doncic to play with some sort of like very, very elite play finishing role, man, and uh, my life will be complete. Um, Rudy Gobert to Dallas is, is my agenda now. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Rudy Gobert to Dallas. Let's make it happen. Mark Cuban, you know what to do. Let's make it happen.
0: Yeah, you, you – you... <laughs> You're not gonna get a lot of pick and pop if you got Rudy Gobert on your team. <laughs>
1: but, oh no, dude, hey. Rudy. Hey, hey, I don't know if you know, but I don't know if you remember Rudy Gobert hitting that pull up isolation mid range this season. Oh my god, into his bag, he's been adding <laughs> to his bag. He's gonna, he's imagine the pick and pop to Rudy Gobert takes it off the dribble, 360 dunk. You know? Oh yeah,
0: now we're talking. <laughs> a, we we need him in a dunk contest. Which it, for it, it is sure. for He's he's like, I think he has the most dunks in the league right now. Um, I remember
1: it was like there was like a stat in like 2020 or 2019 where it was like Giannis is on pace to set the record for dunks in a season, but Rudy Gobert's right there with him. Yeah,
0: because <laughs> <laughs> that's all that's all <laughs> Gobert does is he just throws down lobs, which is fine. I mean, that's his game. Um, and he's got, I mean, he's it's, it's getting him like 16 points a game
1: on like 74 true shooting. So if it ain't broke, yeah. don't fix it, you know?
0: Yeah. All right, I'm not going to let us get derailed onto a Rudy Gobert conversation. So moving on, (laughs) let's get to our three quarters of the way through the season uh, award picks. And I think it just seems logical to start off with the MVP award. So my question to you is, who is your pick uh, for MVP? And I think I already know the answer, but I want to hear you say it.
1: Yeah, um, I've been really, like, thinking, like, about different candidates and thinking about how this might actually be a really close race. Yeah. Um, But I'm starting to get to a point where it's, like, if the, if the MVP means what it means, most valuable player, I don't really see how it can't be Jokic right now. Mm-hmm. Like, it's to a point where I'm starting to think this is, like, one of the 10 greatest regular season peaks we've ever seen. Like, I was expecting him to taper off at, at a certain point. Right. But um, it's just not happening. Like, let me throw some numbers at you. He's scoring right now 29 points per 75 on plus 10 efficiency. That's like Jeez. Uh, efficiency only rivaled, or, or let me say scoring production, only rivaled by like peak Steph Curry, peak Kevin Durant, peak LeBron in the regular season. So it's like, oh, so you can argue he's been the best scorer in the NBA this season. I'm not yeah. saying he has been. but There's an argument from a production standpoint that like, his level of scoring rate, volume, efficiency, and versatility makes him the most complete scorer in the game. Yeah. But that's not even his best ability. That's the thing. He can't be double-teamed, so you have to let him score at that rate because if you do double-team or try to zone him, he will pick apart your defense like Tom Brady. If you remember the Bucks game, they tried to zone him, he had 15 assists in 3 quarters and they won by 40. Yeah. Like it's it's ridiculous. It's getting to a point where like no matter what coverage you throw at him, he's going to pick it apart like the best quarterback of all time. And it's getting, it's just, it's ridiculous. And there's so many structural advantages attached to Jokic that I feel like get overlooked. Like the fact that he's a dominant inside scorer, like a legitimately dominant inside scorer in the restricted area and the post. He'll just back people down into oblivion and then just like do a little jump hook, little right. baby hook. Mm-hmm. Um, And because of how dominant he is inside, the teams have like opponents have to put their biggest guy on him. Like whether that's Kavan Looney, whether that's Evita Zubots, Isaiah Hartenstein, whoever it is, they have to put their biggest guy on him. Yeah. And man. how does he combat that? He stands 30 feet out and does dribble handoffs, taking away all of the <laughs> room protection. So it's like his spacing values. It almost reminds me of like a modern era Dirk with like his, his, how he bends the defense. Right. and, but Dirk didn't have the passing. Like when you're taking away the rim protection and then you you have the arguably the greatest passing vision ever. Like the the, the amount of downhill uh cutting opportunities that creates is is not even fair. Like if you look at the if the at the Nuggets roster, um you can say a couple of guys have been Jokic's best offensive teammate. There's Monte Morris. Yep. Um. There's there's Aaron Gordon, Will Barton, all these guys, but no one really stands out. There's not a Jamal Murray. There's not a a Michael Porter Jr. No, they're all just the kinda, Nuggets. They're just
0: kind of role players. I mean, right. That's what they the are.
1: Nuggets have the Nuggets are over a one eighteen offensive rating with Jokic on the that's floor. That's insane. That's higher than the Hawks with Trey Young. That's higher than the Suns with Chris Paul. That's higher than any other MVP candidate by, like, multiple points. um, Except for, like, Donovan Mitchell because the Jazz are, like, 120-something with him on. But that's that's just absurd. But, like, yeah. Jokic's offensive impact right now, I think you could argue this is going to be an extremely hot take. Oh, boy. Here we go. I think you could argue Jokic right
0: now is a top
1: three or four offensive player ever. Um,
0: uh, Yeah, I think, I, I, I think I'd agree with that. We've never seen anything um, like this. People people don't get right. that. We've never seen anything like this.
1: People people look at, like, the best offensive big man ever, and they want to look at giant scoring numbers. They want to look at post-talent. They want right. to look at Hakeem Olajuwon, Wilt Chamberlain. Um, We've never seen a guy put together a package like this. It's almost, It almost reminds me, it's like a unique blend of, like, the strengths of Dirk Nowitzki and Larry Bird, who are two of the top 15 offensive players ever already. And that's yeah. not even accounting for the fact that he's, like, a top five offensive rebounder in the league. And for me, if you can argue that he's a top five offensive player ever, and in the regular season, he's proven to be a very clear positive on the defensive end. I won't get into the nuances of his defense because in the playoffs, it can become problematic. No, Mm -hmm. no real rim protection value. uh, Can't really keep up with guards in the perimeter. So he can't switch or anything. Um, but in the regular season, what he does as an, as just a positioner, um, as a pick-and-roll defender, is a clear positive. We have years of data showing that he positively impacts his team defense in the regular season. So, for me, Jokic being, um, it, but for me, this season, by far the best offensive player on the planet. Like, no discussion this year. Yeah. Um. Even Steph, I wouldn't even put in that level yet this season until he starts playing uh, his shot making comes back a bit more right but um, for me just being by far the best offensive player on the planet right now and being a clear positive on the defensive end of the regular season MVP's regular season award I think the most valuable player this regular season has been Jokic and while I will throw Giannis and Embiid and Steph somewhere right below him um, I do not see too much contention at this point in time and to add to that the Nuggets have uh, like the 28th remaining strength of schedule um, and, and the 76ers are, like, first. So if it de- becomes a Jokic versus Embiid battle, if the Nuggets end up with a better record, is there even a discussion?
0: Right. And, and the I, I... the thing with me is, and maybe this is a very unnuanced way to look at it, Um, you know, one thing when it comes to, like, how valuable a player is to their team, you want to see how each of these players' team teams do when these guys aren't playing so one of my hang-ups with not necessarily hang-ups but one of the things that I've kind of realized uh through both statistical research and just watching what hap what happens on the floor when Embiid plays or when Embiid doesn't play the Sixers are usually able to hold their own you know like in games that Embiid hasn't played this year uh, there have been several where the 76ers have, like, blown out some top teams. Well, and even they beat though, the Grizzlies, like, yeah, comfortably. Yeah, comfortably beat the Grizzlies despite not having him beat. Giannis, you know, even without Giannis, the Bucks aren't nearly as good without Giannis. Don't get me wrong, and that's not what I'm saying at not. all. But they're still around an average team. But the Nuggets, without Jokic, are, like, near historically bad and yeah i can just toss
1: the number at you um the nuggets with Jokic on the floor are a plus 10 with him off the floor they're a negative 10
0: holy cow that's a 20 point swing that's That's ridiculous that's a 20 point swing like You talk about value. It is most valuable player. And I understand, you know, record and all this, you know, oh, Russell Westbrook won, even though he was the seventh seed or the sixth seed in 2017. And that's the only exception. Other than that, everyone has to be a top seed if you want to win MVP. Maybe that's not a good criteria. Maybe we can, you know, actually look at the award for what it is and its value, most valuable player. And there is not a single player in the entire NBA that has been more valuable to their team than Nikola Jokic. The numbers show that what you see on the court show that it is it is a a a universal fact that without Nikola Jokic, the Nuggets are one of the worst teams in the NBA. And with Jokic, they are near one of the best teams in the NBA. So mm-hmm. I don't understand how anyone can sit there with a straight face and say that Nikola Jokic is not number one in the MVP conversation just because Joel Embiid has a deeper bag or because Giannis plays better defense. It's Nikola Jokic, yeah. and there's really not any argument that you can make in favor of either of the two other guys. As much as I love Giannis Antetokounmpo and as much as the Bucs are you know, the second, my second favorite team in the NBA – it's just a fact. Nikola Jokic is the most valuable player in the league. There's no other way around it.
1: Yeah, and, and it's very, very... Uh, I, I agree with your point that like the, the team record is kind of stupid to me because then you're you're holding players accountable for their team being worse without them. Isn't that a, an indicator of their value? Right. Like, the Nuggets having the worst bench like damn near in NBA history is not a product of Jokic not being valuable. If anything, them being that good with that Makes it more valuable. So for me, I like to look at on court net rating. I like that a lot more than looking at team record. And to throw to, to really put this into context, how absurd this is, the Nuggets on court net rating with Jokic on the floor is higher than the Lakers net rating in 01 with both Kobe and Shaq on the floor. Jeez. That's both the- Kobe and Shaq together. We're not producing a net rating that Jokic is right now.
0: That's I, unreal.
1: It's like, I wow. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, this guy's best teammate is Aaron Gordon, and he's putting up a better on-court net rating than the one Lakers with the best peak duo of all time on the floor together.
0: That's insane.
1: It's crazy. It's crazy, and I think um, that alone, that alone – should be an indicator of his value if the plus 20 on off didn't already do so.
0: Exactly. So moving on, uh, I think we'll go into Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, who is your pick? And I think I also know the answer to this one. Uh, who is your pick for Defensive Player of the Year this year?
1: I don't think you know this one um, because I don't actually have a pick. I can't pick. Oh, okay. Um, I think the best two, clearly, have been Draymond Green and Rudy Gobert. I think the, uh, they're splitting hairs, uh, whether he, who you want to say has been better. But um, both have missed so much time that it's like, okay, you got to look at some other candidates. I think Giannis, from a talent standpoint, again, uh, is on the level of those guys. And mm-hmm. if you want to give it to talent defense player of the year with games played, Giannis would be the clear frontrunner. Yep. But... I think with this crazy offensive load he's been burdened with, with Drew and Middleton missing time, I would say his defensive value hasn't been at the level it's been at the past three uh past two, three years. Uh just in terms of just raw impact on the team's defense. Um, whether that should take him out of the discussion entirely, no. Obviously not. Right. But um there's also guys like Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. Jaron yeah. Jackson Jr. Yep. Um Al Horford, no, I was kidding, but Al, the, <laughs> I, I wanted to throw in a Celtic there because the Celtics have been ridiculous on defense. Yeah, they have, um, they have. But, yeah, there's just so many different guys that you can look at, like even uh, – <clears throat> yeah, no, there's just so many different guys, and for me it's really hard to really get set on one. For me, I don't know at what point the game's play becomes too much to get them out of the race. I don't know if there's like a limit, Um, but for me – Teams are approaching the 60-game mark, and Draymond Green has played 34 games. Uh, I'm not sure how many Rudy has played. Let me check real quick. Rudy has played um, 44 games. So that's a 10-game advantage uh, on Rudy's end. So I'm going to say – I'm going to pick Rudy Gobert. That's probably who you're expecting, huh? Yeah. Um, I'm going to pick Rudy Gobert, and – I think Draymond probably has been better, but but it's so marginal that when you look at the games played, it's splitting hairs. And for me, we saw what the Jazz defense looked like in those games without Gobert. Don't get it twisted. They were oh my goodness. I can't even remember what the number was, but just the thought of it disgusts me. Like it was like to a point where they weren't even looking like an NBA team at all when he was off the floor uh when he was out with uh, the injury and it's just it's just uh to a point where his defensive value is just so high in the regular season I do think he has some playoff drop I think it's overstated but I do think it exists mm. but um his value this season has just been so absurd on the defensive end as a floor raiser that it's just um for me He's been the the either first or second best defender in the NBA. And when it's that close with Draymond Green, you have to give him the edge for games played um, in 10 more games. At this point, we'll probably end up being 15 to 20 by the end of the season. Uh, I think Rudy Gobert has the edge for me with a close second and third to Draymond and Giannis.
0: Yeah, I think those are good picks. I. As far as games played, I don't know how it's going to impact the record, but uh, just for the sake of playing devil's advocate and not having the same picks, because I think, you know, Draymond Green and and Rudy Gobert have been pretty easily the best defenders in the NBA when when actually playing. Um, But for the sake of playing devil's advocate, I'm going to say Giannis Antetokounmpo, um, with a close fourth being... Man, I might go Jaron Jackson Jr. Jaron Jackson Jr. has just blown my mind on defense this year. He's gotten much better uh, with the fouling issues that he had earlier in his career. Um, Definitely. he His advanced numbers look really, really good. Uh, he's been one of the best shot blockers in the entire league. Uh, I just really like what I've seen from Jaron Jackson Jr. And While I don't think he's going to win it this year, um, he may not even be top three this year, uh, I do think he's somebody to watch. Going down, you know, two, three, four, five, six years from now, potentially winning one or two of these uh, during his career. Uh, same goes for Evan Mobley. He's blown my mind on defense. He's just an absolutely incredible defender um, and so versatile. I mean, he can guard the perimeter. He can guard the interior. He can play health defense. KG. Yeah, he's he's insane. So, uh, but I'd probably go Giannis. Um, advanced numbers love him. He's arguably the best help defender ever. Um so yeah. yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Giannis, uh, definitely a good pick. For the next award, we have got a Sixth Man of the Year, and to be completely honest, I think there's some guys that you can go with. Um, I think there's probably two or three guys that you could pick right now that I wouldn't be terribly mad at. Um, and I don't know how popular of a take this is, but I'm gonna go Kevin Love. Same. Uh, yep. pars- yeah, partially for like. You know, his numbers are really, really good. But also like I'm I'm not like a big narrative guy, but something about like the Kevin Love situation, like tugged at my heartstrings a little bit. So maybe I'm giving maybe I'm given a little more uh slack or I don't know, maybe I'm putting more stock in it simply because I think it's a good story, like He didn't want to be there the last two years. He didn't want to sit through this rebuild. He tried to get traded multiple times. He didn't want to come off the bench. He wanted to play his game, Um, and there was clear friction on the court. And now, this year, he's come in and played his role and accepted his part in this team winning games and doing whatever he can to help them win games and I don't know, it just it showed a lot of professionalism and showed a lot of growth for me from Kevin Love. And like I said, while I don't put too much stock in narratives, I do think the fact that he is probably the leading candidate right now, the narrative just kind of makes it that much better. So I I, I think Kevin Love is is pretty easily the sixth man of the year right now. Um, but yeah, that's my pick.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree. I think Kevin Love buying into this role where he's – um. Uh, the the, the floor-spacing big who can knock down a triple at any point mm-hmm. and uh, adds another dimension of passing and playmaking. That's, a, that's an aspect of Kevin Love's game that I would say has been overlooked since he played in Minnesota. Um, he's a phenomenal passer and playmaker. And when you have a guy, like we were just talking about with Jokic, who can space the floor, pull out bigs, and then exploit those advantages with passing, um, that adds another dimension to your offense on top of already being one of the best spot-up shooters in the game. So... I 100% agree with your pick of Kevin Love, um, and I I I see some other guys. Like I, I know a lot of people prefer Tyler Hero because, uh, all due respect to Tyler Hero, the Sixth Man of the Year has turned into a l- scoring leader off the bench award. Right. A point per game
0: off the bench award. Even if and you're playing, even if you're playing be, 36 minutes a night. Right. Right.
1: And for me, it should just be the most impactful player off the bench, which, in my opinion, has been Kevin Love this season.
0: Right. Yeah, I I got no beef with that. I agree. So moving on to the last award that we're going to talk about, and I think that's all the major ones. I can't think of any. Um,
1: there's there's two left, two major ones. Um, there's most improved and there's that's coach of the it, year.
0: Most improved. So let's start with uh, which one you want to start? With? Let's do coach of the year. Uh, all right. My pick for coach of the year, and maybe this is a hot take. I don't know. Uh. Maybe this is kind of probably a wild card and like probably goes against the grain of what a lot of people are saying in the coach of the year race. But Monty Williams, Monty Williams, the Suns have the best record in the NBA. He got Chris Paul to buy into his system and Chris Paul has has notoriously been you know kind of that player coach and he got Chris Paul to buy into this system and he crafted this perfect system with Devin Booker Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton he's utilizing all of these role players so well he's getting he's getting the most out of Bismack Biombo and Frank Kaminsky he has revitalized Cameron Payne's career you know, Jay Crowder is playing such an integral role on this team. Mikael Bridges is arguably the best wing defender in the entire NBA right now. And the Suns are just on a whole other level than the rest of the NBA right now. So in my opinion, Monty Williams probably didn't get coach of the year last year simply because, you know, oh, Chris Paul's on your team. Chris Paul's coaching just as much as he is. This year, to me, it's kind of like, nah, we got we to gotta give credit to Monty Williams. Monty Williams... Has done a fantastic job, and you know you make the argument that he should have won it last year, but he definitely should win it this year.
1: Yeah, I I uh, really like Monty Williams. It just left a bad taste in my mouth when he didn't make any finals adjustments on Giannis. That kind of like, uh, in those in game adjustments really had me like, oh, is he really that level of coach? Then he comes out this regular season and completely like um, got rid of any negativity I had towards his coaching. Um they've been phenomenal across the board. Every single lineup they put out is good. Like if you look at any players on off, it's like a zero on that team because their benches their bench units are always so good. Their starting units are always so good. He staggers minutes perfectly. Right. Um his rotations and schemes are just so good. And um yeah like you said the Suns are like steps ahead of the league right now. Um but I want to toss two other names out there. Um I'm pretty sure Monty Williams would be my pick too. But I want to shout out Eric Spolstra. Um the Heat have been barraged with different yeah. COVID injuries, things like that, and they've been the number one seed. So it's like, got to give credit where credit is due. Um, and also Taylor Jenkins on the Grizzlies. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, number five in net rating, 41 and 19. Um, Yeah, they have a great young roster. They play with a ton of energy. They have a young star in John Morant um, and some nice role players, but they don't have the te- – like <clears> – <throat> Just looking at it across the board, their talent level isn't good enough to where they should be, like one or two games behind the Warriors. Right. They, I think he's done a phenomenal job with that squad on both ends of the floor. And for me, those have been the three big names. I do want to yeah. give credit to Steve Kerr too. Um, I know Warriors fans are very, very fed up with Steve Kerr, but um, yeah. it's worth noting that. Uh, Obviously, Steph Curry is the system, but the system still has to be implemented and used properly. And I think Kerr does that very well.
0: Yeah. And
1: his rotations are very questionable. But I think <laughs> uh, I personally think that he kind of does that on regulars in the regular season on purpose to tinker with a ton of different large samples of pairings. And we see this is kind of like a trend with Kerr where he'll toss out some very, very weird lineups for the, in the mm-hmm. regular season. Then in like the final stretch before the playoffs, we'll start seeing them just explode as they run like these great pairings. Like for me, I think Steph Curry should play a ton of minutes with GP, two. Yeah. I think that's a pairing that needs to. Mm-hmm. And, and just yesterday in an interview, Steve Kerr said GP two is going to get the start. He's going to start playing more more starter minutes um and for me like i think steve kerr it's kind of like the plan you don't want to show your cards early you know you don't want to yeah. sh- you don't want to show your playoff rotation 10 games into the season because then when it comes playoff time the utah jazz you, it becomes very easy to game plan yeah so i think uh there, there's some kind of uh i could be wrong could go into the playoffs and see the same bs and uh <laughs> that, then i'll be very off base so you can hold me accountable if i'm very off base on this mm-hmm. but uh I think it's kind of like uh, almost like a mind game where Steve Kerr doesn't want to play his cards too early and um, is kind of waiting to showcase that and just implementing that system and making it run so effortlessly, um, especially the defensive unit, yeah. um, I think has been huge in making the Warriors so successful. And he would probably be my number four behind those other three names I mentioned.
0: Yeah. One more honorable mention that I want to I say uh, before we move on to most improved player, Billy Donovan uh we talked about we talked about uh you know with the heat they've suffered so many injuries this year the bulls are kind of in that same boat and yet they've still been able to remain competitive at the top of the eastern conference um and while i don't i don't necessarily have him as my number one pick and i don't exactly know where i'd rank him um i definitely think he deserves some credit he's kind of been a coach that's gotten a lot of flack throughout his career um People claimed in OKC, he wasn't a very good coach. Uh, his first year in Chicago, people still were, were not necessarily sold on him. Um, so, yeah, I, I I think he deserves some credit for for what he's been able to do with the Bulls and their roster um, and the level of talent that they have. Um, he's extract, extracted a lot of value from some guys who, you know, maybe don't necessarily have the highest value in the world. So uh, definitely props to Billy Donovan. Um Moving on to the most improved player award. I want to hear your pick. I want to hear your pick first.
1: I, I just can't even, like... <laughs> There's so many good the, choices. This is easily the hardest award to pick every year. Because, Absolutely. like, at a certain point, like, where do you, like... Uh, is it, like... Uh, it, it's so hard to gauge, like, how much a player actually improved. Right. Like, whether it's a rotation change, whether it's a schematic change, or, or players around him changed, or whether it's, like that player just having absurd shooting luck and not really actually improving much um, right. or getting more shot attempts. And yeah, exactly. That, it, it's so uh,
0: like you said, uh, real quick with the, the shot attempts thing. That's what, uh, and I'm just going to throw this out there before you give your pick. That's one of the reasons that I'm not picking miles bridges. And I know Charlotte Hornets fans are probably going to get really mad if they have listened this far into the podcast, all 12 of them. Uh <laughs> the reason I'm not picking miles bridges is because one of the biggest symptoms leading or one of the biggest contributing factors leading to him having the improvement that he has had is the fact that he's gotten way more of an opportunity this year than he ever has so far in his career. He's gotten more touches. He's gotten more minutes and he's literally been the second option for that team. So in my opinion, He is just on that natural progression that I kind of expected from him when given more minutes. So real quick, I just wanted to put that out there. My pick personally is not Miles Bridges.
1: Yeah, I think uh, my pick, um, really thinking about it, I think there's so much value in elevating from already being like a star level player to an even higher level Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons I thought Luka Doncic could have very well won it that one year in 2020 yeah because he went from like a star player to like an absurdly good player yeah and um somewhat I I don't say I don't think this guy's on Luka's 2020 level yet but um just in in the same light like jumping from a sub all-star to a clear all-nba level guy to me John Morant
0: yeah I think
1: John Morant is my most improved because uh, just just the way it, it's so much harder to improve when you're already really good when you go from a really bad player to to a, just a good player that's a great improvement don't get me wrong but it's so much harder when you're already good to find stuff to improve on and yeah. for john moran already being a very very good player and jumping to like damn near superstar level i think that's the best improvement you can possibly make uh in this season i think john moran is the most improved player personally
0: yeah i think that's a great pick and uh I, I I really don't have a set pick yet. I'm still kind of just waiting to see the rest of the season how things go. I think some honorable mentions and perhaps some other candidates, uh Darius Garland, uh Anthony Anthony Simons has had it just strictly in terms of scoring and even playmaking, his playmaking's improved a ton. Um You know what? Anthony Simons Garland-
1: Go, sorry to cut you off. No, go ahead. Garland um completely slipped my mind. He'd probably be right there with Joffrey. Oh, I totally yeah, forgot yeah, about I him. Think like, so. I remember just two years ago, people were talking about him as the worst player in the NBA. Right. Now he's like,
0: also, oh, which is so one which of the best is offensive so players in the Stupid league. because he literally was drafted. He was the youngest player in the entire league when he was drafted. And people yeah. called him you know, uh, the worst player in the NBA. He wasn't even like, okay, he was bad. Don't get me wrong. The Cavs were bad. And yeah, he was like, one of the things people criticized was like his efficiency. He was shooting better th- from three than like the majority of his rookie class and was over 40% from the field, which is something, you know, that's all. If you're like over 34% from three and over 40% from the field as a rookie, you know, good. That's a good baseline. So the fact that people called him the worst player in the NBA, and I know advanced metrics hated him, but they also hated the Cavs. So I still can't believe that people like spent so much time talking about how Darius Garland was the worst player in the entire NBA, even though he was literally the youngest player in the, in the, in the league and also wasn't even the worst rookie in his class. Yeah. And I did that with another
1: guy too, who I've seen floated in a couple most improved discussions, Jordan Poole. Yeah. Um, Metrics hated him early on, and now he's playing an integral role in the second best team in the league. So, yeah, uh, Darius Garland is one that slipped my mind, and I love Anthony Simons too. I'm glad you mentioned him. His uh, he's kind of looking like a, a young Damian Lord right now.
0: Darius Garland or Anthony Simons? Anthony Simons. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Anthony Simons. In terms of scoring, his playmaking has improved, but I don't think it's improved enough to really. That's like going to catapult him into the most improved player, like front runner position, but uh, he went from eight points to 17 points per game, which is a pretty crazy jump. Uh, his true sh- his uh, true shooting percentage is at 58%, which on almost 18 points per game, that's pretty good. And on the volume that he's been doing it on, his is uh, pretty impressive. Um, he's one of the only players in the NBA attempting over seven three-point attempts per game and hitting them at a 40% clip uh so while he's not personally my front runner for the award I do think he's an honorable mention along with Darius Garland I think John Morant would probably be my pick because I I'm a sucker for when you know normally I don't think players should not that they shouldn't be eligible but when you take that second year leap I think it's kind of expected like with John Morant he kind of took that second year leap uh but the third year leap I'm always like with rookies that that are com- that come in and are touted as these potential superstars, I always wait for the third year before I make judgments. If things are having, yeah. if things haven't gotten better by the third year, and that third year isn't when they take a leap, that's kind of when I'm like, okay, it's time we start tailoring our expectations. John Morant exceeded those expectations and has most definitely taken that third year leap that I expect from guys who are touted as you know superstar caliber players, and uh, I think he's pretty easily the guy who is going to win the award.
1: Yeah, I pretty much nailed it on the head there. Okay.
0: So I think that's going to wrap it up for today's episode of the pin down. Uh, be sure to leave a five-star rating. If you enjoyed it, uh, if you're on Spotify or Apple podcasts, uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We got all the links in the description for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and we will see you in the next one. Thanks.